0: Well, good morning, good morning. Good to see you this morning, and it's a joy and privilege to be here with you. Thank you, Pastor Charlie and uh, Pastor Chad and Pastor Tim, for just the honor of standing behind the sacred desk here and opening the Word of God. I appreciate the privilege of doing so. As a matter of fact, as a result of uh, being at Southwestern Seminary, uh, indirectly as a church who is a cooperating Southern Baptist Church, you Indirectly give to my salary. So I appreciate that so much. Uh, we, ha- we need more churches like yourself there. Uh, the cooperative program supports all six of our seminaries. And of course, Southwestern is the finest. <laughs> Just, you know, Tim's a graduate, Chad's a graduate, you know. So anyway, we're grateful for the work that God is doing in all of our six seminaries and God is blessing us tremendously. I also want to thank you, Cornerstone Baptist Church. I thank you for taking care of our children. Richard and Amber. Yeah. and our grandchildren okay yeah. and that's why we're here jack's going to be 7 tomorrow and is growing up just right before us, and is a great blessing to us. There, so we're grateful for all the work that God is doing. Well, you have your Bibles there. Turn with me to uh, Psalms 96. We've read that in a responsive reading there, and I want to go, kind of just walk through this passage with you this morning and point out a few important aspects there of what the psalmist is saying to us that we might uh, apply it to our own lives personally. I'm the interim pastor also at First Baptist Church Deer Park, Texas, which is a suburb, suburb of Houston. And I began a series uh, in September on worship, the importance of worship. And I preached this message as my introductory message on the importance of worship. Worship comes from that Anglo-Saxon, that old English word, worth scrip. It means to ascribe or to esteem someone higher than ourselves. To ascribe worth to someone or something. And in this case, the psalmist is ascribing worth to Yahweh our God. And it's a wonderful passage that uh, reminds us that we are to all give worth to our God there. I want to begin with a quote from John Piper. His book Let the Nations Be Glad says this quote: missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate. Not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their face before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. End quote. You see, worship is the fuel for missions and evangelism. If you know anything about our seminaries, especially Southwestern, we thrive on missions and evangelism. But it's out of the overflow of our hearts. It's out of our worship to God personally that our ministry of missions and evangelism takes place. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. You see, the gold of missions is the gladness of the people of God. And as we rejoice in what we have in salvation there, and it flows over from us, it ought to spill over to those we come in contact with on a regular basis. Just listen to some of the other psalms around Psalms 96. Psalms 97.1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad, Psalms 67, verse 3 and 4. Let the peoples praise thee, O God, let all the peoples praise thee, let the nations be glad and sing for joy, Psalms 9, 2. I will be glad and rejoice in you, I will sing to your name, O Most High. You see, the reason the church has become so ineffective and the message of the gospel has become so watered down is because we focus so much on man rather than the greatness of God. We're so enamored with ourselves rather than God and who he is that we miss our focus of worshiping. I believe the most crucial issue in worship today and in missions today is the centrality of God in worship, in the life of God. Of God's people the church now I love the Psalms okay most of the Psalms fall into three categories there is the lament Psalms the lament psalm is like Psalms 42 or 43 Psalms 46 lament psalm that uh, we referred to just a moment ago there a lament psalm is a psalm where the psalmist is crying out to Yahweh to deliver him or the people of God from a crisis all of us have times like that where we are just crying out to God. The lament is a psalm just like that, but then there is the thanksgiving psalm that follows the lament. The thanksgiving psalm is the cry of the psalmist saying, "Thank you, Lord, for hearing my prayer, my supplication, in the midst of my crisis, and meeting my need and then that follows the praise psalm. The praise psalm is a is a psalm that says Not only do I want to thank you for meeting my need, but I want to praise you for a new aspect of your character that I learned within that crisis that teaches me your faithfulness, your goodness, your mercy. Uh, We just need to focus on the goodness of God. And this Psalms 96 is a song of praise. It's a song of praise that's focused on the greatness of God. We see his power, we see his majesty, we see his glory, but we also see his judgment. And he is able to judge because he is a holy and righteous God. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of break down this passage for us. Now, Brother Charlie told me I could preach as long as I wanted to. But you probably leave about eleven forty-five or so. So uh, you know, and, and I forgot to tell you. Well, my my clock says it's ten after ten, so I can preach for a while here this morning. So you know, we might be here. I'm glad you brought your lunch or you had your breakfast or whatever there. But let's kind of walk our way through uh, this psalm this morning. I won't read it again. You've already read it there, but I want to begin to refer to it. And before I refer to it, I have one more quote for you. Now I teach pastoral ministries at Southwestern Seminary. And that means I teach preaching, advanced preaching, the Christian home. I teach evangelism. I teach anything that deals with pastoral ministries. And so as a preacher, I love preaching books. I know your pastor does too. Your pastors do, I know. This quote comes to us from John R. W. Stott. Dr. Stott was pastor of Christ Church in London for 35 years. Just passed away in 2008. Tremendous man of God. Anglican minister who was a great expositor. He wrote his book, Between Two Worlds, which is on preaching. The art of expository preaching. Between Two Worlds, the first century and the 20th century. He wrote this book in uh, 1982. I want you to listen to this quote. Quote. Word and worship belong indissolvably to each other. All worship is an intelligent and loving response to the revelation of God because it is the adoration of His name. Therefore, acceptable worship is impossible without preaching. For preaching is making known the name of the Lord and worship is praising the name of the Lord made known. Far be it from being alien intrusion into worship, The reading and preaching of the word are actually indispensable to it. The two cannot be separated. Indeed, it is their unnatural divorce which accounts for the low level of so much contemporary worship today. Our worship is poor because our knowledge of God is poor. And our knowledge of God is poor because our preaching is poor. But when the word of God is expounded in its fullness... And the congregation begins to glimpse the glory of the living God. They bow down in solemn awe and joyful wonder before his throne. It is preaching which is accomplishes this, the proclamation of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God. And that is why preaching is unique and irreplaceable. End quote." What I want to do for you this morning is walk through Psalms 96 and allow us to glimpse the glory of the greatness of God. And as I do, I pray that the Spirit of God might stir your heart, not just stir your heart, but challenge your mind to quit focusing on your own personal needs. Yes, we all have them, but on the greatness of our God who can meet every need that you have. Well, let's begin. Well, I have to, first of all, as a preacher, preaching preacher there, teaching preacher there, I must pause to set Psalms 96 in the context of this passage. Psalms 96 falls within Psalms 93 and 100. We have eight Psalms here that constitute a song to the king and they are arranged in a specific order. Psalms 93 affirms the enthronement or the government of Yahweh. He desires for us to allow us to place our our thoughts on him. He wants to rule our lives there. Psalms 94 expresses the hope of the people of God in the midst of every trial that we might face. And then beginning in Psalms 95 through Psalms 100 there are a number of varied Psalms there that extol the kingship of Jehovah or Yahweh. Psalms 96 moves us from the supremacy of Yahweh over all of creation to the equity of God's judgment in all things. So first of all in Psalms 96 verses 1 through 3 we see the greatness of God in salvation. We see the greatness of God in salvation. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. First of all, verse 1, you see the exaltation of the uh, psalmist. He says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. I mean, he's just saying sing there. And that word there, sing, in the Hebrew root there, means to address a song to someone. It's not to sing about, as some of our hymns do, or ascribe words to. It's literally... Sing unto the Lord there. It's a song of of praise to God for who he is and what he's done for us. It's the praise song from the heart of the child of God because he has received the grace of salvation there. We are to sing a praise song as we gather together in worship. In other words, worship is to be personal. I can't sing for my wife. She sings better than I do anyway. But I can't sing a song of salvation for her or for my children or for my grandchildren. I must sing according to my relationship with the Lord. So the psalmist is expressing that there. Verse 2 there, proclaim, proclamation of the psalmist there. The word proclaim in the Hebrew here is used over a thousand times in the Bible. It's the Hebrew term which means to celebrate the name of Yahweh. In this verse, it is to proclaim the name of the one who brings salvation to us. We understand that salvation is the work of God. It is a work he does for us, in us, and through us. So we are praising him and singing glory to the salvation he's given to us. And then that third verse there, jubilation of the psalmist, he says, declare. The Hebrew term here is a term for preachers It's a term for teachers. It's a term for the saints of God there. It's the Hebrew term which means to inscribe or to engrave in stone or on the hearts of the men of truth about, about God. It's to, to mean to tell or to number or to narrate or to count it or to take a census. It can even mean to write a letter. In other words, this word declare in verse 3, says, as we sing to the Lord and celebrate the name of the one who brings salvation, we are to do it among the nations on a daily basis. That's focusing on the greatness of God in our salvation. I don't know how long you've been saved. I don't know how long you've been redeemed. I don't know how long you've known the Lord. But oftentimes in the routine of worship or in the routine of service, We lose our exaltation, our proclamation, our joy of our salvation. The Psalmist says right here, we must get back to praising God for the salvation He has given to us. There ought to be the joy of the Lord on my face and on your face and on our hearts there. Wherever we go there, they ought to have, that folks ought to see a difference within us. And if not, you've lost the joy of your salvation. The greatness of God has brought salvation, and as it flows through us, it goes to the people there. That's exactly. What Matthew 28 18 through 20 says we call that the Great Commission now I found a lot of Baptists call that the Great Suggestion <laughs> but it's a Great Commission okay the Great Commission says go ye therefore as you go the power of God's upon you there and, and take the greatness of God in salvation to all people groups to all ethnots, to every people group and celebrate and proclaim his mighty works So we see the greatness of God in salvation. I just want to remind you this morning. Can folks see the greatness of God in you? Is the joy of the Lord flowing through you on a regular daily basis? If not, you're probably not spending enough time in personal worship. You see, personal worship during the week enhances our corporate worship on Sunday morning. And if you want to get more out of your corporate worship on Sunday morning... Then spend more time in personal worship during the week. Well, I've gone to preaching, gone to meddling now, but Charlie, I need to move on there, okay? Number two, we see the greatness of God in salvation, but I also want you to see the greatness of God in creation. That's verses 4 and 5 and verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 4. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Literally, Yahweh made the heavens. Our God made the heavens. And so the psalmist here is expanding the greatness of God beyond salvation. He's expanding it to the greatness of God in creation there. God is to be praised because he is the creator of all things. All things are in his hand there. Verse 5, I love that. All the other gods are but idols. The word there is the Hebrew term to work or to fashion an idol. It's uh, to uh, focus on a carved image there or an earthen vessel there. It's a man-made thing. All other gods are man-made, but God, our God, created the heavens. You say, well, preacher, you know, we uh, we don't have any idols around our house. I mean, we don't have any idols. We don't have any carved images like that. Oh, really? I think so. They might not be a carved image, but there's that image on the wall of that favorite team of yours. All done to meddling now. You see, our images and our idols here in America are sports. We're fanatics, and everything consumes us there. Those are all man-made things to keep us from our personal and corporate worship there. God is in control there. So we need to focus on his goodness and his grace there. All other things, all man-made things are simply idols that would keep us from our worship of God. But verse 10 and 11 and 12. Look at that look down there. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So we move from verse 4, God is great and greatly to be praised, to verse 10, say among the nations. In other words, we understand God's great. I understand God's great. I praise God for his salvation. I'm grateful for his goodness to me. He has blessed me abundantly there. But not only should I just bask in that blessing to me, now I need to go outside of the four walls of our church there and, and bless the Lord. Let the Lord, let the nations know the Lord reigns. The, the world is also firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. That word established, the world is established. It means the privilege of setting up a, a habitat, the privilege of setting up a house. Uh, the living presence of God is there. God created the world to be inhabited. And when He did so, it was good. And so, as a result of that, verse 11 let the heavens rejoice. And let all the earth be glad, and let the sea roar at all of its fullness, and the field be joyful, and all that is in it, and all the trees and the woods be rejoicing in the Lord there. As we talked about that this morning in Bible study, the sin that came into creation clouded everything. Not only all flesh, but everything was corrupted. That's why God had to bring judgment there. But here... As we focus on the greatness of God in creation, all of creation is, is desiring to rejoice. That takes us to Roman uh, Revelation 4 and 5. I love Revelation 4 and 5. It is a picture of worship. It is a picture of the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ for what he's done for us in salvation. But I love the portion there that says there's coming the day When all creation, all living creatures, everything that flies in the air, everything under the water, everything that creeps on the ground, they will say blessings and glory and honor belong to him who sits on the throne. My wife has a dog. I don't have a dog. My wife has a dog. (laughs) And some of you have dogs or cats or whatever there. There's coming a day where all of creation are going to speak. And say, He is worthy. He created all things. He is worthy of our praise and our adoration and our blessing there this is a picture there of declaring the greatness of God in salvation there and you said wait, wait a minute wait a minute I thought that Romans 8 tells us that all of creation groans right now awaiting the complete the completion of redemption yes exactly so all of creation does groan because of the sin that has been placed in our world there but there's coming a day where God's going to remove all of that then and creation is going to know him in all of his glory once again there and it's going to be a day of praise and, and adulation there and, It's going to be a wonderful time of just rejoicing in the creation he intended for us to have. Sin has corrupted where we are. And we see it every day. We hear it every day. So we see the greatness of God in salvation. We see the greatness of God in creation, which results in the greatness of God revealed in worship. Here's my focus there. Look at verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, and verse 13. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness and tremble before him all the earth I want you to see the aspects here these are aspects that are revealed in Revelation 4 and 5 they show us the Father and the Son in heaven and what a majestic picture that is there but here we see that same aspect the psalmist is is focusing on worship there first of all adoration verse 6 honor here means to adore means to beautify, means to glorify. Beauty carries that same idea. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. When we gather together on Sunday morning, what are we here to do? Oh, we're here to talk about our favorite team. We're here to talk about the weather. We're here to talk about everything. No, we're here to focus on the beauty and the glory and the greatness of our God. We are here to adore Him and to worship Him. And our adoration should uh, be that which flows from our heart over the the abundance, the overflow there. He is to be worshipped and adored. And then verse 7 there, he makes it very specific there. We find adoration, we find magnification. Verse 7 and 8. We are to magnify Him in two ways. First of all, through our families. I'm so grateful for my family. We have four generations here today. It's amazing. Uh, my mother and, uh, and Angela and I and then Richard Damber, Amber and then Jack and Lily. Four generations. I cannot, I cannot tell you the blessings that God has bestowed upon our family. Uh, I, I, I don't understand God's grace to us. Don't understand why God loves us like he does. But I am so grateful that he has. And as a result of that, one simple thing I've tried to do as I've tried to minister and model before my children, my grandchildren, all of my life. I was, I was born again. I was I brought up, a, child, I was brought up a, a preacher's kid, you know? Preacher's kid of the worst. You know why? Because they run around with deacon's kids, you know? And that's, that's, that's it. But <laughs> I made a profession of faith when I was young, seven years of age. I had a head knowledge. But I didn't come to know the Lord personally until I was 26. I received a profession of faith and grace at that time. And God transformed my thinking, my disposition, everything about me. And so fortunately, my children grew up seeing me as a believer. Not only a believer, but one who sought to walk with the Lord and worship the Lord on a personal basis. And one of the things that my wife and I committed ourselves to in our marriage was not only to love one another, but love the Lord God and to develop in our children the desire to be worshipers of God. You see, you as a parent, your responsibility is not just to make your children dependent. It is to make them interdependent. interdependent okay. We think that if we raise our kids up to stand on their own and make their way in the world there and provide for themselves there, we've done our, our best. No. Our responsibility as Christians is to help them interact with one another there so that when they join the body of Christ, they might use the gifts that God's given to them for the glory of God and the world might see how people get along together, not only in the family, but in the church and in the world. So families, our responsibility is to magnify the Lord within our family first. I teach the Christian home. One of my first statements that I make during the first week of class and all the way through the class is every family is dysfunctional. Some are more dysfunctional than others. But every family is dysfunctional. Until the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit takes control, we cannot magnify the Lord within our families. But when we esteem to him that worth that is due his name for the salvation and the gift he's given to us. He transforms us. I don't have to transform my wife, my children. I'm transformed. And as I'm transformed, God gives me the grace to know how to love them and discipline them and encourage them. So we magnify the Lord through our families. Our families are to give him glory. I trust and pray that my family does and that I do and that yours will as well. But, Brother Charlie, you'll like this one. Look at verse 8. We are to magnify the Lord also through our giving. Hallelujah. Amen. Bring an offering. It's, it's not just a sacrifice there, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a sacrificial gift back to the Lord there for all of His goodness to us there. So we are to magnify the Lord as being good stewards of all of our resources, all of our finances there, all that we have there. So we magnify the Lord through our worship, we give Him glory there, we magnify the Lord through our resources there. At one point, at what, at what point do you stop moving up the ladder... And you come to a point of saying we are comfortable, God has blessed us here, and now we want to be a conduit to allow the Lord to bring resources to us that he might flow through us to meet missions, to meet other needs, to meet benevolent needs, whatever the case may be. You have to come to that point as a Christian there. Am I glorifying Lord or am I moving up the ladder like everybody else in culture there to get more and more and more, or am I learning to give as a gift back to the Lord to glorify Him. Oh, I've gone to meddling again. I need to move on. Adoration, magnification. Look at verse 9. Consecration. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. You see, we can only worship as we approach God in reverence and fear because of His holiness. He is holy and we are not. And as a result of that, were it not for His mercy and grace, we could not even enter His presence. But because of the finished work of Jesus at Calvary, we can receive all of His abundant grace there. The word worship there, sanctify there, it means to set ourselves apart there. It's like a sacrificial gift there. He is holy, and as we offer ourselves to Him in worship, we become altars, only. we become sacrifices on the altar as well, that He might use us this day, but in the days ahead. And then finally, verse 13, we see the greatness of God in glorification, but the greatness of God in judgment. Pastor Tim's already prayed this morning for the tragic situation in Oregon. Do you ever do you ever sit and just read the news, or you see the stuff, and you say, "Man, it just didn't fair. Just didn't fair. Why, why, why? How can this happen?" No, it's not fair, folks. Sin's not fair. But there's coming a day. Look at verse thirteen. There's coming a day, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Don't be discouraged, saint of God. Jesus is coming. And when he comes, all these inequities that we see in life and around us will be righted by the one who is totally righteous. So missions is not first and foremost, but worship is As John MacArthur has stated in his book, worship is the ultimate priority. Missions and evangelism flow out of our worship of God Almighty. William Carey, known as the father of modern missions, wrote this in his journal in 1793. We had the opportunity to visit Carey's church and visit Fuller's Church where he was commissioned to go to India in 1792 and here's what he wrote. You remember if you know church history at this time in church history among even the Anglican church there Reformed theologians were so enamored with their theology that they didn't think about the importance of missions and evangelism. If God wants to save the heathen he was told he'll do it without your, your help. Well Listen to what Carey writes in his journal, Quote, When I left England, my hope for India's salvation was very strong. But amongst so many obstacles, it would die unless upheld by God. Well, I have God and his word is true. And though the superstitions of the heathen were a thousand times stronger than they are, And the example of the Europeans a thousand times worse than they are. And though I was deserted by all and persecuted by all, yet my faith, fixed on the sure word, will rise above all obstructions and overcome every trial, for God's cause will triumph. God's cause will triumph. Don't get get discouraged by what you see. Keep your focus on the greatness of our God. He'll meet your need. He'll meet your family's need. He'll meet the need of his people. God's cause will triumph. Let's pray.